0: This episode contains references to violence. Please take care while listening. Last time on We'll Be Wild.
1: Hey, brother, we're boots on the ground here. We're moving on to Capitol now. I'll give you a boots on the ground update here in view. few. We'll see you soon, Jess. Airborne. After that, brother. Godspeed and fair winds to us. She always came back to the line, and it really stuck with me is that, you know, we are here to protect people. And you hear something like that, and I'm protecting which people and protect them from what? And that was never really answered. So at the very end of the report on page seven, there is a subtitle called disgruntled military veterans. And in hindsight, I realized how that term could come across as offensive uh, to some people, cause it's sounding like these military veterans are coming home and actively seeking out membership in these extremist groups.
2: One of the things that I thought was a very chilling effect and I would say that that chilling effect still existed probably till January the 6th is people worrying about what they're putting out because it may become political fodder.
0: About a year into Donald Trump's presidency, Miles Taylor was sitting on a long leather couch in his boss's office. At the time, he was deputy chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security, working under Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. They just received an alarming intelligence brief and were discussing what to do when a call came in from the White House. Taylor says Nielsen put Donald Trump on speaker and then muted their side of the call.
1: Which happened many times when the president would call, put him on mute.
0: The president wasn't calling about the alarming intelligence brief, Taylor says. He had an idea, something he wanted to do along the southern border, in addition to building the wall. He wanted to dig a moat.
1: Quite literally, to dig a moat so that illegal immigrants would fall into the moat and then have to climb up through the dirt and then above the wall.
0: A moat, 18 feet deep, as deep as the wall was high.
1: But it got crazier.
0: Once they had the moat. Trump wanted to fill it with lethal reptiles.
1: We're talking about a 2,000-mile-long border, and the president of the United States wants to see if we can get alligators and snakes and put them in a moat at the border so that if a migrant fell in, they would get eaten alive or attacked. And we were like, what the fuck is he even talking about? Is this real? Is this a joke? At first, you'd kind of nervously laugh, thinking clearly he's making a very weird joke.
0: It was not a joke. Trump wanted cost estimates, ASAP.
1: Those types of episodes disrupted entire days at the Department of Homeland Security, where the secretary should have then gone to, let's say, a sensitive intelligence briefing, and then met with the senior officials at the Secret Service, and then on down the list of all the things that the secretary should be doing, but instead would have to drop everything at the order of the president to go do a back-of-the-envelope assessment on how much it would cost to dig a moat and put alligators and snakes in it at the border.
0: Very few people outside the agency understand how DHS works or how central its role in government is. It's the youngest and the largest law enforcement agency in the country. It was formed after 9-11 when it became glaringly obvious that vital intelligence hadn't been shared across the government. DHS is made up of 22 federal entities, from the TSA to the Secret Service to FEMA, The number one mission of DHS, written right there in the law that created it, is to prevent terrorist attacks within the United States. Despite its size, there are limits to what the Department of Homeland Security can do. Unlike the FBI, DHS is not the agency usually in charge of embedding informants in domestic terrorist groups or disrupting violent plots before they occur. Unlike the Justice Department, DHS does not prosecute terror plots. And unlike the Capitol Police, DHS does not have operational authority to guard the nation's capital. What DHS does have the power to do is to issue threat assessments and share the information necessary to activate the FBI, the DOJ, the Capitol Police. Warning other law enforcement agencies, collecting and sharing information, and coordinating a coherent response, those are at the heart of DHS's mission— That did not happen on January 6th. DHS didn't issue a single warning. Not one. Why? In this episode, we're gonna trace the direct line from the idea to build a moat at the border to DHS's catastrophic inaction prior to January 6th, and how what went wrong inside DHS can help us to understand why other government agencies failed, too. Because the forces at work inside DHS were being replicated all across the government during the Trump administration. And once that damage is done, it takes more than a change in administration to fix it. From Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music, this is Will Be Wild. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Chapter 3 Homeland. In the summer of 2021, I went to visit a woman who'd worked in the Department of Homeland Security under Donald Trump.
3: So nice to meet you in person. person. Thank you for
0: taking the time. Elizabeth Newman was the Assistant Secretary of Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention. She worked at DHS until the spring of 2020. But her time in Washington started nearly two decades earlier, in 2001, right after George W. Bush was elected president. Newman has a kind of Texas charm. Connie Britton could play her on TV. In the early years, she worked on counterterrorism policy at the White House. She spent her days studying Osama bin Laden, how he recruited his
3: followers, how he used his charisma to appeal to disaffected young men. They get a sense of belonging. They get a sense of empowerment. They're meeting needs that weren't met elsewhere. Eventually, Newman took a job as a private contractor.
0: Her focus shifted from al-Qaeda
3: to ISIS. So al-Qaeda was very hierarchical, bin Laden's in charge. ISIS was, come and join us as we build a society. And so they, they created videos to recruit people and not... Necessarily from a religious perspective, but like they were casting a vision for being a part of a utopian society.
0: Newman got married, had kids, and eventually moved back to Texas. And then in late 2016, she got a call from a friend in the security field
3: asking her if she wanted to come work for the incoming Trump administration. It was like, nope, we moved to Dallas two years earlier, kids are in school, we're good.
0: A little bit later, she got another call. Was she sure there was a position for her
3: if she was interested? Um, who, who called you? I'm not going to share that, but, <laughs> but, a, but a friend had called me. This friend said to Newman, essentially, Liz, they don't know what they're doing. You can help fix this. They were like, there are things I can't tell you that I'm seeing in the intel. We're facing some difficult times as a country. That talk of country got to her. So were you going
0: there to, like, save the country from the president?
3: No, no, that's a good question. Um, I knew that he was going to be an unorthodox president. Newman and her husband had a series of what she called intense conversations about whether she should take the job. So he was concerned about, you know, the reputation of that, as well as, you know, are you, by participating, somehow condoning or complicit with his way of governing um what is
0: your answer to that
3: i mean i wrestled with it right i like i i I think it is completely understandable why people question why i went in and question why i stayed when after something like child separation for example i understand the questions and i think they're valid all i can offer is that for context I'm, i'm a spiritual person If I have a fault, it's that I think I offered Trump too much grace. So Newman took the job at DHS and moved with her family back to the D.C. area.
0: And what she found almost immediately was that the president was not really interested in policy. There was this one call in advance of a speech he was scheduled to give.
3: I remember him being, the president being animated. And I remember him getting really into the weeds on what the stage needed to look like, what the structure of the event should be. He, he almost could care less what the messaging was or what the purpose uh, was for the event. We put it on mute and we're like, what, <laughs> is the president his own advanced guy? And I wanna say somebody else was in the room and was like, yeah, this is pretty normal. Like, this is how he operates. And you're like, okay, that, that's, that's what we do now, so.
0: When I spoke with Newman at her house in Virginia, she had a stack of papers in front of her for reference. The first time she prepared a briefing for Trump, she took her usual approach, drilled down into the facts, summarized them
3: for the president. When she finished, she was told that's not what the president likes. So let's next time make sure the slide has only like three words and a lot of pictures. Exact, that, that is exactly the guidance that we were being given. It wasn't, it, it was like, how do you get his... Precisely that. Three words and a lot of pictures.
0: Yeah. So you know, my co-host Ilya and I sent four pages of questions to Donald Trump's team for this series, including questions about Newman's briefing. We received no response. Miles Taylor joined DHS around the same time as Newman. He's the one who told the moat story at the top of the episode. He was in his early 30s at the time and by any measure an overachiever, high school valedictorian, debate champ, congressional page.
1: That desk that they used to block the entrance to the chamber to keep the insurrectionists out uh, was the same desk that I sat at as a 16-year-old page.
0: Almost everyone we talked to for this series who worked in Homeland Security told us they went into the field because of 9-11. Taylor had visited the Twin Towers as a middle schooler in the summer of 2001, just before the attack. Fifteen years later, he was a top staffer in Congress working on the House Homeland Security Committee, where he sat in on classified briefings about Russian interference in the upcoming election.
1: And then I saw it up close once I joined the administration.
0: Hold on one second. So here's you, Miles Taylor. From a teenager, like, your mission in life is to defend the homeland. The beginning of the Trump administration, you know, you have personal knowledge. You were party to the briefings on Russian interference, and you knew that Trump was denying it, and it was concerning to you, but you apply for a job anyhow.
1: Yeah, well, didn't apply for a job technically. Uh, You know, they asked if I would come in.
0: He signed on and eventually became chief of staff to the DHS secretary. Like Newman, Taylor concluded right away that the president wasn't all that interested in defending the country against its most urgent national security threats.
1: Donald Trump saw DHS as useful for only one thing, and that is very, very strict immigration policies. While I was at the department, I would not have even put border security and immigration in the top five most crucial national security concerns to the country.
0: Taylor ticked off his list of significant threats. Adversaries like North Korea and Iran, cyber terrorism, domestic terror was right up there too. In August of 2017, DHS issued a warning that an upcoming gathering in Charlottesville could get violent. Elizabeth Newman was at a museum with her kids the Saturday the Unite the Right rally took
3: place. And I started getting alerts that the situation was deteriorating.
0: Newman said she was horrified as the events unfolded, not because they didn't see it coming, but because they did.
3: The frustrating thing was... We called it. If, does that make sense? Like, we saw this happening. It's rare. It's rare that you have analysts see in real time, like, something's happening, and then we weren't prepared for it.
0: A few days later, Donald Trump held that press conference in the lobby of Trump Tower in New York, the one where he said there were very fine people on both sides. You
1: look at, you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides. We were always worried no anytime it. Donald Trump no did a press conference. It. Miles Taylor. I'm not joking. At the Department of Homeland Security, if Donald Trump was going to appear on TV, there was a better-than-even chance at some point he was going to be asked about an issue that touched the Department of Homeland Security. And most of the time, he probably was going to say something we disagreed with that was off-message. And
2: you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides.
1: He essentially excuses the violent side of that episode. He excuses, frankly, individuals who had violent intent, domestic terrorists, instead of condemning them.
0: Taylor's former boss, John Kelly, now the White House chief of staff, was standing right near Trump during those remarks.
1: I mean, in that moment, you know, the American people could see John Kelly, who had just been the secretary of Homeland Security, who was becoming aware of an uptick in the domestic terrorism threat, uh, drop his head in disappointment.
0: Miles Taylor and Elizabeth Newman both said that after Charlottesville, it was clear that right-wing domestic terrorism was a central threat to American security. Taylor told me it was like realizing a wildfire was spreading across the country.
1: Every single FBI field office in the country at that point we were told had a domestic terrorism investigation. That's really when the alarm bells went off for me. We'd only ever seen that with international terror threats up until that point in my experience.
0: So Taylor did what he would do in the case of any terrorist threat. He drafted an action plan to confront it and sent it to the White House.
1: Quite literally, I was the guy sitting at the keyboard writing up the language that was robust and strong and, you know, we're going to go after this threat as seriously as the international terror threat and then laying out specifically the things the U.S. government would do.
0: Under the law, the administration was required to issue an anti-terrorism plan.
1: The expectation was they would defer to the department responsible for counterterrorism, on what the president would say. Why would they second-guess it? We're, We're their experts. When the draft came back, Taylor was baffled. I genuinely thought it was a mistake the first time we got a draft back. I thought my red lines, you know, everyone's done that in Microsoft Word, had track changes on. I thought my red lines, adding all that language, had not been accepted, had accidentally been deleted. I mean, something was wrong. It's just like the document was massively different. I called the White House. I called the National Security Council. I asked about this, and I was told, no, your, your language was struck. All of it?
0: They kept a handful of sentences. In September 2018, an op-ed appeared in the New York Times entitled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. The anonymous author wrote, Many Trump appointees have vowed to do what we can to preserve our democratic institutions while thwarting Mr. Trump's more misguided impulses until he's out of office. In the weeks and months that followed, there was intense speculation over who anonymous might be. Trump's anger was reported as volcanic. He tweeted, "Treason." Miles Taylor was anonymous, and he remained that way. He stayed on in government until the next spring. Taylor says he decided his time in the administration was up after a presidential trip to California.
1: And the president was urging border agents essentially to do something illegal. And his comment was, if you get in trouble and they put you in jail, I'll pardon you. And to me, that was a moment to leave. The point at which saying no to the White House was no longer enough is when I decided, well, there's no point in staying. If we can't try to steer this in the right direction, if the president is just going to buck us every time, there's no point in being here.
0: We'll be right back. Miles Taylor was just one of a whole line of public servants who either had enough or were pushed out. In the spring of 2019, his boss, Kirsten Nielsen, also left. This came after a dramatic set of meetings, later described in detail by the New York Times. In the meetings, Trump insisted that the border wall be electrified with sharp spikes placed on top. He pushed his idea for a moat filled with alligators one more time and suggested that border agents shoot migrants in the legs to slow them down. Trump has denied that this ever occurred. Nielsen would not speak to us for this podcast. Through her lawyer, she denied that Miles Taylor was present for any calls with the president about the moat. In April of 2019, Trump named his fourth head of DHS.
2: Put simply, since taking office, President Trump has decimated the leadership ranks of his own Department of Homeland Security. In recent weeks alone, President Trump has Dismissed Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, circumvented the law by forcing acting deputy secretary... Benny
0: Thompson is a Mississippi congressman and the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee. He wanted it on the record that President Trump's destabilization of his own agency was a threat to American security. In a hearing, Thompson went on for almost five minutes. A lot of the time was spent just listing the names of people who'd been fired or forced to resign.
2: At least 12 other critical positions across the department's key components and offices are operating without permanent leadership. Moreover, there are another 50 senior leadership positions vacant throughout the department, including those tasked with overseeing the daily operation of DHS.
0: In case you didn't catch that, 50 leadership positions vacant.
2: This chaos appears to be by design.
0: I talked to both Newman and Taylor about the churn at
3: DHS. You knew you were in a losing battle, and you're just trying to hold on as long as you can, hoping that eventually reinforcements might make it in. Not because I was afraid of losing my job, but it meant that you wouldn't be there the next day when somebody needed to step up and say, no, we shouldn't do this.
0: Miles Taylor agreed with Benny Thompson's conclusion that the chaos was by design. He said Trump himself admitted as much.
1: On multiple occasions, Trump expressed to us, either on the phone or in person or on Air Force One, how important it was to him to have actings, is what he called them. He would let them know that his preference actually was to have people in an acting capacity because they were more willing to do what he wanted. Because that would potentially get them the job permanently. You know, it's push exactly
0: backwards. like The Apprentice. Did you ever write, did you ever watch The Apprentice? It's exactly like The Apprentice,
1: except in this case, you know, American lives are on the
3: line.
0: Elizabeth Newman had spent years studying how leaders mobilize terrorists. She recognized this pattern,
3: and we now have tons of data to back this up. More violence. Um, and people that have been convicted of that violence citing Trump in their court cases as the reasons why their violence was justified against an immigrant or somebody that they had othered, somebody that they had put in their out group.
0: In August of 2019, a shooter entered a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and murdered 23 people, injuring about two dozen more. He posted a hate-filled manifesto online before the shooting, invoking an Hispanic invasion.
3: Trump himself had said it from the podium multiple times throughout 2016 campaign and throughout his presidency.
1: An invasion, it's like an invasion, this invasion. We have an invasion of drugs, invasion of gangs, invasion of people.
0: The New York Times did an analysis in 2019 of how many times the Trump campaign had used the word invasion in its Facebook ads that year. 2,000 times in eight months.
3: I'm trained to offer people grace and I try to do that. And that was for me that was that moment where you're like, no, you are complicit. You have led to the violence. And if you can't apologize for that, then then I, I can't I can't give you the benefit of the doubt anymore. You you own this.
0: How how do you even deal with that when you're the assistant secretary for counter terror and the leader of the entire United States government is
3: saying things that are leading to terrorism. It, th- that's, <laughs> that, I mean, that's a million dollar question, right? We're not saying we think that when the president speaks, people do violent things. We're saying the evidence shows that it happens.
0: The shooting in El Paso was the breaking point for Newman. She gave herself until the spring
3: of 2020 to wrap up her work. If we did a disservice, it's that we covered up the incompetence. We covered up the danger that he was. And in doing so, it made it easier for the American public to assume, like, things are fine. Things, you know, we're going to be fine. And then,
0: just as she was about to leave DHS, a terrifying new threat emerged. I want to talk to you about the beginning of the pandemic. For sure. March 2020, you're still still there, still at DHS. And
3: it becomes clear that COVID is going to be incredibly disruptive. How does it look? We have this massive table where we do senior leaders meetings because DHS is quite large. There are 25 heads of all the divisions. And I'm looking around the room and I'm having the realization that I'm one of the older people in the room. It's not the way the system's designed. I mean, I'm not saying I'm super young, um, but, but there should be people older than me in the room. I shouldn't be one of the oldest. And two, I don't see anybody that has emergency management experience sitting at the table. Newman thought to herself, this is going to be a
0: disaster. We're not equipped to handle what is coming at us. That was true for DHS as a whole, and it was true in her area. Counter-terror. She decided to do one more thing before she left the agency. She gathered her staff and asked a question.
3: Hey, uh, we're about to experience some really big stressors as a country. What, you know, what does the data tell us? I was like, I have my own idea of what this is going to mean, but can you go have the team pull up the studies and cite it so that it's not just our hypothesis? There's, you know, academics that go out and do this kind of research are we in for a spate of violence on the other side of reopening?
0: The answer was unequivocal. Yes, people were about to be isolated, lose their jobs, live with fear and uncertainty, spend hours alone on social
3: media. These were all the things that drastically increased the likelihood of violence. The concern we had that when you take a stressor like this and the entire nation of the United States experiences, your, your pool just expanded massively. Your denominator got huge. Newman and her staff wanted
0: state and local law enforcement agencies to be on high alert for domestic terrorism, to watch out for violent plots. They prepared a memo to be sent out across the country, warning of the connection between the pandemic and extremist violence.
3: Is that what your memo said? This could lead to violence? I don't think it's, this could. It said we should expect to see more violence on the other side of reopening.
0: Under new COVID-era requirements, any department memo that mentioned the pandemic had to be approved by the White House. Newman's memo wasn't approved. The warning was never issued. She left in April. That spring, chatter on message boards was confirming Newman's warning. Brian Murphy, the guy in charge of intelligence for DHS, was seeing it everywhere. He was an acting undersecretary, close to the top of the agency org chart, and his attention was squarely on this open-source intel. By mid-2020, it was clear to Murphy's team that white supremacist violence was becoming an urgent threat. Murphy put together a report for law enforcement agencies around the country, letting them know, be on alert. Murphy says DHS leadership was not happy about the report. He says he got called in to see the acting secretary, Chad Wolf. Wolf was the fifth person to lead the department
1: under Trump. Then, you know, we got in a shouting match. And I was like, look, this report's going to go out.
0: Murphy says Wolf shouted back.
1: It's going to hurt the president and it's going to hurt him Chad Wolf with the president and with his chances to be confirmed with the Republicans.
0: Chad Wolf denies this happened. I asked him for an interview. He wrote back on Christmas Day. His email said, not a chance. On August 1st of 2020, Murphy was reassigned. The report eventually did go out, but in neutered form. The open source intelligence program was curtailed.
2: And we were already
1: collecting on QAnon and uh, the Boogaloo movement and the Proud Boys and Three Percenters. We were looking for those people, and they shut that down.
0: The message to DHS staff was clear. If you speak up, if you raise inconvenient truths, your head will be put on a pike. Murphy filed a whistleblower complaint, accusing his bosses at DHS of manipulating intelligence to serve Trump's political aims. Murphy's duties were assumed by a DHS lawyer. In the days before the election, the replacement issued a memo to analysts. Do not send out reports about election-related violence as you normally would. The memo specifically warned they would be penalized for doing so. By January 6, DHS had failed to issue a single threat assessment about plans for violence in Washington. The threats were louder than ever, but DHS leadership had made clear it did not want to hear them. Next time on Will Be Wild. A family man stuck at home during COVID goes deep into conspiracy theories and ends up at the Capitol with a gun. Who tried to stop him? His own
1: son. I was excited. You know, COVID really had people in a bad place. I'm, that, I'm sure that goes across the board. And he needed an outlet and he found it.
2: Fox News took Carlson, all that.
3: It just grew into like Newsmax. And then he'd be on his Confederate page, on Wiley Confederate page on Facebook. Personally, I think my family and they overlook what my dad does as just him being, oh, it's him. He's just an arrogant narcissist. It almost sounded like more like a Boy Scout thing to me. He was having a purpose, basically. He's uh got white short hair, very stern, very he's very Texan FBI agent.
1: I open the door and there's just AR-15s pointed at me, and you know, they're yelling at you, and then I hear the flashbangs in the backyard and I'm like telling them to stop. I knew they were there for Guy, they were yelling his name. So at that point, I knew that I just wanted the kids out and let them do what they needed to do.
0: Will Be Wild is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's hosted by me, Andrea Bernstein, and Ilya Maritz. Our senior producer is Kat Aaron. Our producer-reporters are Christine Driscoll and Alice Wilder. Our associate producer is Marie-Alexa Cavanaugh. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Fact-checking by Jane Drinkard. Our sound designer is Hannes Brown, who also composed the original music. Pineapple's head of engineering is Raj Makija. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our managing producer is Candice manriquez renn Senior producer is Eliza Mills, and executive producers are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louis, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Special thanks this episode to A.C. Thompson, Nick Schwellenbach, and Adam Zagorin.